Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you haven't yet, remember to follow this podcast on your podcatcher of choice, like Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. And if you have time, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us and we read them for your feedback. Here's what one of you had to say. Farai is an amazingly strong, intelligent woman. I love listening to her talk politics. This is amazing. Keep it up. Speak for the truth. Stand up for human rights, all humans. Thank you. Wow, that is so sweet. And I have to say, doing this show is really a dream. I love getting to tell these stories, and we are so glad that you're listening and that you enjoy the show. You can also reach out to us on Instagram at x at our body politic, where you can sign up for our newsletter. Just click on the link in the bio. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. So keep letting us know what's on your mind. Thanks for listening. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. We're ringing in the new year, and as we turn the page to 2024, we are also sharing some of our favorite conversations with authors from 2023. We start by revisiting a book that explores one of America's most deeply political and personal issues, our health. Data shows that Black Americans live sicker and die quicker than their white counterparts, but why is that the case? The question is at the heart of journalist, professor, and author Linda Villarosa's latest book, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on Health in America. In the book, Linda uncovers how the American healthcare system, medical bias, environmental factors, and even racist myths from the time of slavery all contribute to negative health outcomes for Black people in America and how racism is the common factor in all of it. Linda joined us back in September to talk about Under the Skin. I'm a longtime friend of Linda's and a big fan of her work, and Under the Skin is no exception. It was named a Pulitzer Prize finalist and a top 10 book of the year from the New York Times. I started by asking about her inspiration for Under the Skin. I think at one point I realized I've been writing these stories since I was the health editor of Essence, and they've gotten more and more political and less and less about personal health and more and more about institutional factors and bigger ideas. And I'd get notes and say, hey, is it okay if I Xerox your article on maternal mortality or HIV AIDS or environmental justice for my class? Mm. And then I realized, oh, people are putting together stacks of these articles in order to make sense of what's going on here. And then I thought, wait, I know how to make sense of this. And I also got a lot of encouragement after the maternal mortality story I did in 2018, because that was a real eye-opener for many people. Yeah, that piece was called Why America's Black Mothers and Babies Are in a Life-or-Death Crisis. So what was it like to report that article, and what were the things you surfaced? I got the article because I latched onto it because... I was listening to the statistics about maternal mortality in America, and it was Black women are three to four times more likely to die or almost die having a baby or in the months after. So I thought, oh, that must be just really terrible in the poorest places in America and where people really lack access to health care. But then I got the real information was that a Black woman, a Black birthing person with an advanced degree MD, JD, MS, PhD, is more likely to die or almost die than a white woman with an eighth grade education. Mm -hmm. 
And those statistics have been furthered now. And it's like, now it's not just about education, it's also about wealth. Rich Black people like Serena Williams can almost die in childbirth. So I think that got me. What I learned was slightly by accident when I was following a young mother in New Orleans, Simone Landrum. I was in the birthing room with her. I had been to her pre-appointments. I had met her doctor. And I was surprised how in front of me, how poorly she was treated. Mm. Even though she had lost a baby and almost lost her life the year before, she was treated with such unkindness, such disrespect. Her doctor was not there. There was a, someone none of us had ever met. And Black women are something like 20, 25% more likely to meet their doctor for the first time when they're delivering their baby. Seeing it, seeing the research that I had and seeing how poorly she was treated, I'm like, no wonder we have these statistics. If in a hospital in New Orleans with a Black patient, the only Black people in the room are myself, the doula, and the mother. So there's a lack of providers and there's a lack of respect. And you really did get under the hood of what was happening by following this woman and her doula into the situation of her birth. What was it like to expose yourself to the emotional intensity of following another woman's birth journey? I have been with other, you know, I was at my, the births of both my godchildren. And so I think I'm pretty good in a birthing situation, but it was very difficult for me to remain, I'm using quotes, neutral when I was seeing how poorly she was being treated. I wasn't taking notes. I was so shocked that I wasn't really recording. I let the doula, Latona, do the advocating so I wouldn't jump into it. But I remember I went back to where I was staying to take a shower and I went home and I scribbled down all the notes. The baby was born at 1 a.m. And I just thought, I can't believe I saw that. Mm -hmm. So I just had to keep myself focused and to say, this is real. You just saw this happen. But it was hard keeping composure and not wanting to jump in and help. Yeah. So I was glad the doula was there. And you have two amazing, multi-talented, grown children yourself. What does the experience of being a mother tell you about this part of your work as a journalist? You know, what, what were you able to pull up from your own experiences? Well, I think two things. First, my own birthing experience was difficult. And I was someone who was definitely not supposed to have a low birth weight baby. I was in really good health. I was the health editor of Essence. I had an amazing physician. I was at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. You know, once I found out that my baby wasn't thriving, I had inner uterine growth restriction. I was surprised, but did everything right. We managed to not have her be preterm. She was born the day after what would technically would have been preterm, but she was four pounds, 13 ounces. Mm. And I kept thinking, what in my life experience could maybe have caused me to have this outlying, really small baby when I had done everything right? And having a low birth weight baby puts your child at risk of having an infant mortality. I think the other thing is beyond this book, I do a lot of interviews with people who are disadvantaged and many people who have children. I realize that I really like children mm -hmm. because I have children and I'm used to them. I raise them. I know their friends. 
And I like having children be a part of the interview because if I'm interviewing, say, a mom or something or dad, I know that experience and I can handle the children, talk to the children and be super compassionate to the people that I'm interviewing who are parents. One of the more intense interviews I've done on this show in terms of just my reaction to the subject matter was with Tressie McMillan Cottom, who is a PhD and who lost a child due to what I definitely think based on the story is medical negligence. She was told to go home as she was in pain and bleeding and eventually lost her daughter. And that really relates to what you're saying about education not preventing adverse birth experiences for Black women, you know, whether it's in the case of the mother or in the case of the baby. Before we go even deeper into some of what you wrote about, what do you hope that your work, whether it's with your book or with the 1619 Project, which we'll talk about, can do to help reshape where we are? I think it does two things. One is I want to, I think it has, and it continue to reshape the conversation around this to say, when people are reporting, like Tressie and so many others, reporting being mistreated in the medical system that's supposed to do no harm, it's real. And that providers must listen. People's stories turn into evidence I have collected evidence in my book and in my work so that people in the healthcare system cannot turn away from mistreatment that I don't think is evil individuals. It's not doctors being racist necessarily as individuals. It's a system that needs changing. And I think Callie, my daughter, pointed out to me that One of the things my book does, it validates the experiences of people who have had their experiences invalidated. Mm -hmm. It was very interesting. In the New York Times, there was a piece about maternal mortality, and it interviewed one of the researchers who was looking into maternal mortality. She's like a, you know, a scientist somewhere. And she talked about her own experience during birth of being mistreated when this is her very area of expertise. Mm. So I think at some point, This has to change. People who can make a difference need to listen to people and read about the pileup of information about this and evidence and change this system. So let's go back in history. You also worked on the 1619 Project and you wrote an essay on alleged physical racial differences. Race is a construct. And it's real because we make it real, but it's not like the universe created Black people. There's people all over the world with a variety of physiognomies and phenotypes. So what's the myth of physical racial differences and how is that still part of the medical establishment? I think there are several myths, but the one that's the most dangerous is the idea that began during the years of enslavement that Black people have higher pain tolerance. Mm. And that was used by enslavers, some of them physicians and scientists, to work people to death, to beat them, to torture them, to take their children away. That was hundreds of years ago, but studies and surveys show that Healthcare providers, including medical students, still believe some of those myths, including the idea that we have a superhuman tolerance to pain. The story of Dr. Susan Moore is very important in this. She was a physician who got 
COVID, she went into the hospital system in Indiana where she practiced. She complained of pain. She said she had pain. I think it was in her neck or shoulder area. And she was not given pain management. And she said herself that she was treated as though she was drug seeking. So Mm -hmm. if there's this myth floating around that is embedded in people's mind and in the practice of medicine that we have a high tolerance to pain, then we don't get proper pain management. Susan Moore died eventually of COVID. Yeah, I remember reading that. I mean, it's a tragedy. A tragedy and part of the, in the investigation following her death, part of the reason she wasn't treated well was because some of the medical providers that were serving her were intimidated by her level of medical knowledge. So basically damned if you do, damned if you don't. So that is, you know, very difficult to hear, but it shows that these myths are still sticking in modern medical education and modern medical practice. I asked Linda about something else she really went all the way with, a story about involuntary sterilization and the piece she wrote about sisters who were sterilized as girls. Linda shared who they were and what happened to them. The Ralph sisters were uh, 12 and 14. They lived in Montgomery, Alabama in the early 1970s. The family of six was living in a field. A Black woman social worker got assigned their case, went, was horrified by how they were living. So she got them into the system. She got them into public housing and she got them into public health system so that they could get care and to education. One of them, the younger one, was disabled. When they got on the radar of the public health system, at the time, they were thinking they were doing no wrong, sterilizing many of the people who had come from the South and were living in the cities, Black people, because they were thinking they shouldn't have any more babies. They're going to tax the system, and it's not good for them. They took three of them, Katie, Mary Alice, and Minnie Lee. Katie, the older one, got away, but the public health service sterilized the two younger ones because they were afraid they would have babies. And and no sense of personal agency, of Nothing. Course. Didn't get their parents' consent. The parents were illiterate, so they didn't understand. They thought they were getting immunizations. Mm. So the good thing is the social worker, Miss Bly, went to the Southern Law- Poverty Law Center and told them what had happened. And so they got the case. They won to say you cannot sterilize someone without their consent or without their parents' consent. But nothing happened to the Ralphs. They never got any compensation. So I started writing about them and thinking, what happened to them? They must be in their 60s now. Mm -hmm. So I ended up going to Montgomery. It took me a year, but I found them. And they were living together in public housing. I'm knocking on their door and Mm -hmm. there they are, these people that I've been writing about, reading about. And I wrote about them in my book. It was excerpted as a cover story in the New York Times Magazine. And the kind of happy ending is I got an email from a woman in Seattle who said, I am wealthy. I want to give the Ralph sisters $25,000 because I know that that's what other, in some states, people get compensated. So I was like, really? Oh, wow. Each $25,000? Yes. We went through a nonprofit in Montgomery, got them the money. They got their own house and moved out of public housing. That's not compensation from the government, but something good happened. Let's talk about the physical and mental toll that racism takes on the bodies of people of color. 
I discovered, I guess, Arlene Geronimus when I was working on America's Black Mothers and Babies are in a life or death crisis. And the funny thing about her was I had read about her theory of weathering. And I remember I was talking to her and she hadn't been interviewed because no one believed her theories. Mm. And then when COVID happened, Black people as a demographic died or were hospitalized 10 years younger than white people. So all of a sudden, Arlene Geronimus is in high demand. How it works is that if you are someone and you have microaggressions or macroaggressions, each time that happens, your body goes into fight or flight. So your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, your body, you know, is flooded with stress hormones, which is good if you are in danger. But if it happens over and over again, because you're being mistreated, it causes a kind of premature aging, which Dr. Geronimus calls weathering. And so as I conclude, you know, you've written this incredible book and you have an incredible legacy of your journalism on all sorts of things from Essence to the 1619 Project. How do you see public solutions, like especially as we're entering the 2024 presidential election? What should we be talking about as a country? I think we have to talk about maternal mortality and infant mortality. First, we need technical solutions because we know that those work. But to heal the racial inequality with why Black women are so much more likely to pass away, we have to tackle the racism in the healthcare system itself. I think we need to encourage the growing activism among medical students, nursing students, midwifery students, students who are studying public health, to say activism, health justice must be part of your education and training. And I think finally, just really listening and being empathetic to people. You know, in our country, we spend a lot of money on it and we use a lot of technical solutions, but we need to put more love into our system. Amen to that. So Linda Villarosa, journalist and author of Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on Health in America. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Writer and journalist Baynard Woods, who is white, was born and raised in post-Jim Crow, South Carolina. As he grew up, he searched for ways to fill the gaps between his own self-perception and the ways whiteness surrounded and protected him. And earlier this year, Baynard sat down with Our Body Politic guest host Karen Grigsby-Bates, who's also a founding member of NPR's Code Switch team. They talked about his latest book, Inheritance, an autobiography of whiteness, which unravels how white supremacy continues to survive and is passed down through generations. Let's listen. Before we get into inheritance, talk to me about writing this book. What was going on in your life that propelled you to write it? I first thought about writing it right after the Mother Emanuel massacre in Charleston. Mm -hmm. Dylan Roof, who killed nine black churchgoers, grew up about 10 miles from me. And my family had bought and sold people in Charleston in a way that I knew but had never seriously thought about. And that night, I immediately started writing something the first time that I really tried to deal with my family's history at all. But it was mostly from the outside through the entire first draft of the book. And my editor, who's Krishan Trotman, who's just a spectacular editor and is a black woman. And she said, you know, I, I wanted to know what it feels like to be white right now. And this gives me a great social history, but I don't see you in it. Mm. 
And my dad was dying of ALS at that time as well. And he was a Trump supporter. And we spent much of our time arguing. And so I was full of emotion. And I centered that relationship to go back and look at his family and the way that it had been passed down to him and how he became who he was and then how I became who I was. Mm -hmm. You spent your early formative years in South Carolina. You ended up in New Mexico for graduate school, and then you went to Baltimore. Those are some pretty stark switches, and I'm wondering if doing that highlighted anything for you about what it feels like to be a minority in a community. Yeah, it was so strange. When I got to New Mexico, I realized how much black and white had defined what race had been. It didn't even register on any kind of racial or ethnic scale to me, anything but white and black, until I got to New Mexico, where there was still a lot of racism against indigenous people, against more recent immigrants, but there was a whole different sense of hierarchy. And then coming to Baltimore, the reality is that most white people in Baltimore can live here and never feel like they're in the minority because the city is so hyper-segregated. And the middle of the city, which is dubbed the White L, is where almost all of the white people live. And it was really around the death of Freddie Gray that I saw the way that all of the social services in the city were different. The roads were paved different. Policing was certainly infinitely different for the largely Black communities and what scholar Lawrence Brown called the Black butterfly than they were in the White L. And that was the starkest thing for me to see. And I still have such a great debt to Baltimore for opening my eyes to so many things. I love this city so much. You taught in Baltimore at a local Baltimore college for a while and sort of came up against another kind of differential. I remember you telling me about the experience of being accused of racism by a Black student. Tell me about that. Yeah, this was uh, back in, I guess, 2011, probably. And so I was teaching Latin at a local university. And in the second semester, Latin 102, there was a student who was from another university and needed the credit to graduate and hadn't had Latin in a long time, seven years or something, she said. And it seemed to me like a clear thing that she was really going to struggle in second semester Latin and doing the a two semester and one thing over the summer would be the way to go. She's like, no, I need to graduate. After that, she understood me as telling her that she didn't have the background for the class because she was Black. And while that wasn't the intention of what I thought I was saying, there was a very real context in which that was absolutely what my words meant. You know, W.E.B. Du Bois had to do Greek and Latin when he went to Harvard to be taken seriously at all by white scholars. The creation of classics, putting Greek and Latin together as a discipline, had been just tightly woven with the white supremacist project and the ranking of different races and all of that sort of stuff came really from the same impulse to create the Western classics. And so it was the first time that I really realized that my intentions weren't the absolute value of my words, that the context within which they fit, the way in which the listener heard them, and the actual history, the game that I was playing, whether I thought I was part of that game or not, 
absolutely contributed to what I was saying. And it was it was also extremely painful in a way that was just eye-opening for these recent years where white people think that being called a racist is worse than being a racist. And we're like, oh my God, like that's the worst thing that could happen to us and fan ourselves. And the reason why I think it was so uncomfortable is it made me, for one of the first times, see myself as white in all that it carried with it, in that regardless of what I said, I wanted the world to be like, I was part of this history and part of this tradition. And if I didn't try to change that, then I was absolutely carrying it further. And it was very uncomfortable to recognize that uh, since. Black and Indigenous people and many other people of color have been talking and writing about whiteness for years. So what makes your book different? How does it fit into that body of literature, you know, the discussion of whiteness by white people? And who do you imagine your book is for? I love that question so much. One of the reasons I thought I had to write is I kept seeing, you know, in James Baldwin and The Fire Next Time, calls on white people to do this work. And in nearly the same words, ta Coates does the same thing in his sort of riff on the book in Between the World and Me. And so it's like, during that period, you know, during the course of my parents' life, my uncle's lives, white people had not done that work. And that too often when we did it, it was what I tried to do the first time. It was historical or theoretical, scholarly, and all of that's super valuable. And I, I learned so much from the scholarly work, but I was really trying, hoping to reach the kid like Dylan Roof when he, instead of, he said he was radicalized when he went online and looked up something about whiteness and that mm. was what radicalized him. And I don't think he would read a sort of HR manual type book like White Fragility or ever be reached by something like that. I hoped that some kid in the South who didn't understand, who heard the next time there was a Black Lives Matter protest was like, what is this protest about? And would maybe stumble on a book that would speak to them. And I also hoped that people like Tucker Carlson's kids were reading the book Under the Blankets at night. I tried to sprinkle <laughs> enough sex, drugs, and rock and roll and stuff in it that it might would be a sort of something that would capture teenagers who do have privilege and would maybe be able to see that in a way that their parents never will. Tell us a little bit what it was like growing up in South Carolina and what your family's place was in South Carolina. I get the impression that they've been there for several generations. So for a very long while, they've got roots in the state and the state has its own kind of peculiar history. Oh yeah. The one thing we don't understand at all is how peculiar that history is. That for 400 years, South Carolina was one of the most totalitarian regimes in, ever in history that used absolute violence to extract absolute value. And they got there in the 1600s on one side and the other side, I think in the 1700s. And they were all slavers. And I can't even begin to fathom the magnitude of that because the way those families would marry into other slaver families. So my editor at one point was mm -hmm. like, well, how many people? And as I went back further on the generations, it was impossible to even count. In 1860, though, the people that my name comes from, the Baynards and the Woodses, there were about 750 people enslaved just in that one year by those two families. But then the web of families is just 
monstrous. There's a figure that you mention, Ian McSwain Woods. Who is this man and how does it figure into your family history? Irvin McSwain Woods was my great-grandfather who had been a state legislator who had helped pass the Jim Crow laws. And he was born at a time when you can't say he was just following the dictates of the time or whatever, as people so often say, because there was a very clear choice. Uh, Mm -hmm. He turned 18 right when the Civil War started. He went and fought for the Confederacy where he lost both of his brothers who were older. He came back to inherit the plantation, joined the Ku Klux Klan, became a terrorist, assassinated a county commissioner, hid out in Texas, came back over through the government and was elected to the legislature. And to me, he's an emblematic figure because the cover-up of his crime, I feel like, created the whiteness that I inherited. Peter Lemon, the man he assassinated, had been all but wiped out of the historical record while there's a plaque to Irvin McSwain Woods in the courthouse uh, in Clarendon County. Mm -hmm. There's a giant statue to Confederate veterans in the lawn. And someone like Peter Lemon, who won a seat in the first free election to ever happen in South Carolina in 1868, despite a huge amount of violence, again in 1870, huge amount of violence in the political campaign, and then assassinated on the day that the KKK Act was passed by Congress. It was the Third Enforcement Act. And the way I figured a lot of this out, the first step was there was no other time in the history of Irvin McSwain Woods' life that he would have had to have fled the state of South Carolina for killing a black man. It was that very brief window, and again in the brief window following uh, the Civil Rights Act, that he would have ever have had to flee. That kind of impunity, you know, the thought that I can do this because I'm me, is something that we see in a circular way over and over in history and goes down through generations. I'm wondering how this affected your relationship with your father. You talk about your father a lot in the book, the culture that he inherited, his frustration sometimes and puzzlement that you were not going along with the program. Talk about your relationship with him a little bit and how his vision of masculinity affected or clashed with yours. I I believe a lot of times with fathers and sons that we spend the first part of our lives with the fathers being disappointed in the sons and the second part with the sons being disappointed in the fathers. And Mm -hmm. he was deeply disappointed in me for being unathletic, for being just an uncoordinated, goofy daydreamer as a kid, very unmasculine by all standards of what they thought this masculine idea would be. But he grew up as a child in a world where he wasn't going to be competing with women or with Black people for jobs. And he, at about 18, he found himself in a different world. He's very much a company man. And in the Reagan 80s, he was just unceremoniously let go from the company that he worshipped. But we always struggled with each other. And up until he got the ALS diagnosis, just around the time of January 6th, and we had a huge blow up on Zoom over the lockdown. But he also, before that, he would go with me to the archives to try to find out about the family history, and he was really interested in it. And the thing that maybe broke my heart the most is He has a lot of brothers who are all sort of MSNBC liberals, and he was the only Trump one among them. And I realized he wanted to use the research that I found about our family's slaveholding history or 
you know, terrorism because they were Democrats who did that then. And he could tell his brother, see, that's what the Democrats did instead mm-hmm. of really wanting to know. But then I've been shocked. My mother died the day before we had her funeral the day before the paperback came out. So the book has been steeped in grief and sadness. But many of the uncles seem to be, from what they tell my brother, without speaking to me at all, angry about the book, even though they tend to agree on much more than my dad would have on the general philosophical tenor and the ideas and theory that when it comes to your own family and your own people and wondering if your mama was racist, that I think struck them in a different way. And so it's caused a lot of blowback with my family that I didn't expect at all either. I'm assuming they've read it and maybe they don't want to talk about it. Yeah, they don't want to talk about it for the most part. Ideally, there will come a time where we're able to delve more into those conversations because they're obviously conversations that we need to have. On the counter side, though, I've begun working with the Lemon family, the family of the man that was assassinated. And we're going to have a memorial ceremony for Lemon in the graveyard where he was buried and where his family are still deacons at the church. And so we've created new relationships out of cross-racial relationships out of facing the truth, even if that's ended some relationships by looking at it as well. What has the research that you've done, the writing that you've done, what you've learned about whiteness in the world, how has that affected your own view of your own whiteness and where you fit in the world? It's completely changed it, both as Being white and being a man, I think in both of those regards, there's such a, especially for people who want to be better, well-meaning white people, well-meaning men, we tend to hide all of our flaws and our mistakes. And, you know, there's this sense in recent years, like, hope nobody finds out about whatever thing that, that someone had in their past because... People are scared of being called out, of taking responsibility is what that means. And and I think for the younger people, the only things we can do is stop covering it up. And we need to we need to be open about our mistakes, open about our flaws, open about the things that we inherited before we were old enough to choose them. Stokely Carmichael said that uh, you look at a black man and you see a black man standing there. You look at a white man and you see the army and the Navy behind him. And I've really tried to pick apart a lot more where the army and Navy intersect with me in that scenario. And it's changed where I live in the city and thinking about where I was going to move. It was, well, I don't want to move to an all black neighborhood where I'm going to be the gentrifier. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to move to in the white L where all the other white people live. And so trying to find a place that is a mixed community where it's also a poor community and um, where it's not gentrifying, but it's staying level. My wife's working on a book about the neighborhood called The Ungentrifiable City about Baltimore. Mm -hmm. There's this great thing about that. And I hope it's that the research is making me better as a white person and better as a man and better as a person because it makes me, in looking at the things in my past and my family's past, it makes me see that I have a choice at every minute to recognize the power structure behind me and to try to dismantle it or mm-hmm. to remain silent in the face of it and let its advantages and its totalitarian control on me accrue to me, the, my trade off for those advantages. 
Speaking of research, Reuters did an interesting investigation on some influential leaders in the United States, including a number of lawmakers whose ancestors were enslavers. The investigation found well over 100 of them, including two U.S. Supreme Court justices, Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch. Baynard, you and I have been talking a lot about what we inherit. I'm wondering if you think some of these justices' inheritance plays out in their actions, specifically in relation to some of the recent decisions from the Supreme Court. I mean, did the history, do you think, of Justices Coney Barrett and Gorsuch perhaps affect how they vote in the present? I think absolutely, but I don't know if it has to be their personal family inheritance or just our cultural inheritance that still hasn't addressed the white supremacy. One of the things I hear most often from white people is, well, my family didn't own slaves. And my mother's family was like that. And and her father grew up very poor. And then he became part of the good old boy system in this small Southern town where he was able to get tickets thrown out and get me out of trouble and uh, knew all the cops and the judges and the lawyers. And we certainly see that on our current Supreme Court. And in this, you know, this push towards originalism, Clarence Thomas is in many ways the most staunchly originalist justice on the court. And he's, of course, Black, but also receives through billionaires and other sources the benefits of white supremacy. And so it's at a complicated moment there. But originalism really means that we are holding in great value the mental process of enslavers. And we've all inherited that of still not uh, looking at what it actually meant for the white people who are enslavers. We've gotten much better. The plantation sites will have really good historical, historical displays and setups and programs on the suffering that the enslaved people went through and on what it meant to be enslaved. We've never yet grappled with what it meant to raise your family in the midst of a concentration camp, what it meant to allow that kind of torture to go on around your children. And I think that we've, we continue to inherit as a culture with the gun debate and the gun violence. And so we've never grasped what it's done to our psyche as white people to have been raised and to have raised children within the midst of such a system. And I think that affects our entire legal dynamic, much of which comes from the slave codes of 1740 in, in South Carolina. Well, that's a whole banquet's worth of food for thought. Bainard, thanks a lot so much. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks so much, Karen. Always great talking with you. Welcome back to Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. This hour, we've been revisiting some of our favorite conversations with authors from 2023. In October, we chatted with some of the Black women creators at the forefront of the Black horror genre. And I got the chance to speak with award-winning author Tanana Reeve Du about her book, The Reformatory, which dropped just in time for Halloween. The historical fiction novel centers around a real-life character in Tanana Reeve's family, her great-uncle Robert Stevens. But she explained to me that a search into her uncle's roots led her down a dark chapter of her family's history. I started by asking Tanana Reeve about the process of discovering her great uncle's story. 
Well, it was in uh, 2013. I lost my mother, the world upside down at the end of 2012. And in the midst of that deep grief, we got a call from the Florida State Attorney General's office saying that I might have a relative buried on the grounds of the True Life Dozier School for Boys in Mariana, Florida. And at first I thought it was a call about a child on my grandmother's side because she'd had a half-brother who was executed as a juvenile uh, when she was young and she never recovered from it. And I'd already addressed that in fiction in a short story called Trial Day. But this turned out to be a completely different young man. This was a 15-year-old. It was in 1937. And in true life, sad to say, Robert Stevens died there, stabbed, supposedly, who knows, by another Mm -hmm. uh, inmate there. And my father, who is a civil rights lawyer, he's now 88, and this was a long time ago, so he was probably closer to 80 (laughs) at the Mm -hmm. time, went with me uh, to Mariana to these community meetings. It was sort of a both a way of us processing our grief over mom's absence and trying to sort of learn more about what had happened to this uncle. Frankly, I don't think she ever knew about. I don't think anyone ever told her the story of Robert Stevens, or she surely would have told me. And um, that was when I decided, I'm going to write about this, not nonfiction, because there are a lot of beautiful memoirs that have been published about the Dozier School for Boys, and that part was not my story. And I certainly did not want to write fiction with the same ending that Robert Stevens had faced. So my whole point was to be inspired by what happened to Robert Stevens, to take that name that had been largely forgotten, had not been uttered probably Mm -hmm. by grief-stricken relatives, and bring him to life in a different form, a different time. I said it in 1950 because that was my parents' uh, coming-of-age generation. I had written a civil rights memoir with my late mother, Freedom in the Family, a mother-daughter memoir of the fight for civil rights. So I knew more about the 1950s from her. I felt Mm -hmm. more at home in that time. So I decided to set it in 1950, give him a different story, and very importantly, add ghosts. Because I felt like I wanted this to be horror. And do a little bit of sleight of hand in the sense that, yes, haints and ghosts are scary, but not as scary, honestly, as, frankly, just history. Being in 1950 as a Black person, just as the author, (laughs) was very scary. So it's a blending of supernatural horror and historical horror. There's actually a piece that came out in October of 2012 on All Things Considered from NPR titled Florida's Dozier School for Boys, A True Horror Story. And it says that 81 boys and young men died there. I mean, at least. Yeah, at least. It's um, I'm so sorry that this is part of your family history. And I also want to really give props to you and your mother for the book that you wrote together, Freedom in the Family, a mother-daughter memoir of the fight for civil rights. What does it mean to bring yourself as a creator and your family's history? You know, you just mentioned your father and then also your mother fighting for civil rights and everything that you your as a family have endured into your work. It means more than I can say. Uh, I do have that ache, obviously, since losing my mother. We were very close. We spoke on the phone every day. She was my first heroine Mm -hmm. in terms of someone who was literally willing to risk her life to stand up for what she believed in. And she also gave me the grace and space 
not to be that person, <laughs> to be an artist and to try to create change through a different channel, all of those things. So I, I often say that Freedom in the Family is the book that I am, I consider the most important book I've ever written. If there was only one book, it should have been that book. And the Reformatory, I think, stands behind that one in that sense. I feel like it's kind of a gift to my mother's history. The protagonist, Gloria, has my mother's middle name. Her name was Patricia Gloria Stevens Dew. Mm -hmm. And she was my North Star through the writing of the story. What would my mother have done? What would 17-year-old Patricia Stevens Dew had, have done in this situation? So if an agent or an editor had a suggestion about something and it did not fit what my mother would have done, I was very, very clear about that. It's a way of trying to honor her her family, and frankly, this generation we are now losing. Yes. My yes. father is 88. Um, so many people, obviously, that mentored him have already passed away, and people in his cohort are also passing away, and with them, their stories. One of the reasons my mother wanted to write Freedom in the Family was that she knew in her lifetime that people were either deliberately or accidentally forgetting history Mm -hmm. And she once sat in on a textbook committee meeting and they said, well, there was no civil rights movement in Florida. And she was like, wait a minute. <laughs> she was there. Oh, no. She and her her sister, my aunt Priscilla Clauza, spent 49 days in jail with other Florida A&M University students in 1960 just because they tried to order food at a lunch counter and refused to pay their fine when they were arrested. And she was arrested many, many times. My aunt was kicked in the stomach by a police officer and basically went into exile in the 1960s, moving to Ghana. So all of, and, and many people we wanted to talk to uh, either had passed on and had never told their children what they did, or they were like World War II veterans who were too traumatized by what they had mm -hmm. been through to want to talk about it. So even though the reformatory is fiction, Obviously, in our current environment, especially in Florida, where it is almost becoming against the law to teach the truth about history, yep. it is so very important that we remember these stories. We remember these previous generations. So turning to the fictional Gloria, you know, who has your mother's middle name, without giving away spoilers, too many spoilers, because you always need a teaser, what is Gloria's role in this story? in this horror story. Gloria is rooted in the real world. She doesn't see ghosts. She has premonitions. So there's a little bit of touch of that. I said it in my fictitious town of Gracetown, which readers may remember from uh, my short story collections, Ghost Summer and The Wishing Pool. And it's a town where strange things happen in the summer and children are very sensitive to ghosts and spirits and creatures. So Gloria does it. She's older. As you get older, it starts to fade. She doesn't, she's not living with sort of one foot in one world and one foot in the other. Her role is the real practical steps, almost a message to the current generation. What are the steps that you take when a loved one is incarcerated? Because even though this is set in 1950, a lot of the issues in the reformatory are still very present today. You could still be asleep in your house and police can break into your house, put your child in chains and then take them away to a cage. And you will have very little recourse to comfort them, to talk to them, to see them. 
And so many families are going through this. I wanted Gloria to walk it through. Like, what what do you do when you walk into that big, scary courthouse? Now, in her time, it's segregated. So there's a Jim Crow entrance. But a lot of it, finding the lawyer, trying to find a lawyer when you don't have money. Who do you talk to? How do you get allies in the community to advocate for you? Using every method she can to try to free her brother. That really is her role. And that's what my mother would have done. It's easy to see the horror in the way that a reformatory like the real one operated. What did you add? You know, we know that there are ghosts and your descriptions are so powerful. What makes a horror story horror, for example, you know, and what makes your writing in this genre for the reformatory horror? What sorts of emotional um, aspects were you seeking to put into the reader experience? I have to be honest. One of the reasons I didn't want to write nonfiction is because it would be so stomach churning to write about the real things that happened at this reformatory. So it's not even so much about what I added, except for the ghosts. I did add ghosts. And I did add a kind of a psychopathic warden as a stand-in, sort of a composite character for the many, many, many people who, if when you listen to reports from survivors, beat sexually abused, Mm -hmm. and with so many in the graveyard, clearly killed (laughs) these children. I don't have a a finger I can point at anyone, so I created Warden Haddock as a composite. But honestly, other than that, it was subtracting. It was what I couldn't say. It was what I couldn't write, because the stories from these survivors are so horrific. One that really stands out in my mind, this was a segregated facility, Black side and White side, and one of the white survivors remembered a, a Black child that they all called Blackie, who was put into an industrial size dryer. And and the dryer was turned on, and that was the last time he ever saw him. I can't put that in a novel. Mm. I'm not going to write a novel about a child being sexually assaulted. They had a rape room at the Dozier School for Boys. I'm not going to put my protagonist through that. So I really had to add the ghosts Not only to bring it more into the realm of supernatural horror, which by definition is supposed to be entertainment, right? But also to honor the fact that there was so much death here, that there was so much suffering here. And you, reader, I am not going to make you sit through all of this death and all this suffering time and time and time again. But these ghosts represent the past violence. Yeah. Well, I'd love you to read a little bit of the book for us. But before you read from the passage, can you set it up for us a little bit? Absolutely. This is uh, Robert Stevens' first day at the reformatory. He He's just being oriented by, uh, as they called him then, a Negro uh, dorm master named Boone, who is very gruff. And he doesn't know what to expect. And while he's being walked across the grounds, he feels like all of a sudden, He's in the middle of a fire. And this is the excerpt I'm going to read. Then came the worst, the screams. Mama had whimpered and screamed in her sickness, but Robert had never heard human screams so wretched they were like animals. The sound was solid enough to touch all around him. Boys, a room of screaming boys burning in a fire. In a flash of knowing as thin as a spider's web, Robert saw the writhing boys, faces twisted with pain and terror, half hidden in the smoke clouds, some already charred black. They pounded with frantic arms against a wall, thunder, begging and screaming, dying. Boone gave him a hard yank again, 
and Robert was plucked from the smoke and the burning room only in the empty field strewn with pine needles and cones again. He expected to see the soil charred black behind him, but nothing remained of his vision except a watery dance like the air above a campfire. Robert panted at the coolness trying to soothe his lungs. Had Boone felt it too? Boone leered back at him as if they were sharing a joke children shouldn't hear. You like that? Boone said. Mute, Robert shook his head. Strange excitement played in Boone's eyes or behind them. Everybody don't go home, Boone said. So I want to ask a a bit more about your work and then broaden it to the genre. So um, we have talked about the history laden into the reformatory and you have characters uh, that you have pulled in from other parts of history into your work, including Scott Joplin in your book, Joplin's Ghost. Uh, and I interviewed you about that back in 2006. So why do you draw on history in your in your books? It was a little bit of a surprise to me when a, a former agent of mine suggested that I, I write The Black Rose, which was based on Alex Haley's research about Madame C.J. Walker. I said, I don't write historical fiction. And he said, well, look at your novel, My Soul to Keep. Look at those historical chapters. And I think it's because of growing up sort of at my mother's knee, hearing her oral histories about the civil rights movement, which really made me finally decide, you know what, let's write a book. So maybe she'll ta- stop telling me these stories all the time, which which actually she did not. <laughs> but. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's that. I think it's that sense of trying to preserve, trying to honor, feeling so grateful for the sacrifices of my parents' generation and really wanting to serve them by making sure, and the people before them, to make sure they are not forgotten. And Horror Noir is a popular title. There's Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror, which is the documentary that I saw. And then there is Horror Noir, Six Stories of Black Horror, which is um, an anthology. And you were, uh, you know, of stories and you were a writer for that. So we also interviewed Xanda Shea Brown, a director in the anthology series. What was it like getting to work on that? To call it a dream come true was an understatement. I mean, The Lake, which I co-wrote with my husband and collaborator, Stephen Barnes, was my first adaptation after Mm. starting publishing in 1995. You know, a lot of people have tried and a lot of people have come close, but that little... 30-minute segment was my first adaptation. And we also did a second one, Fugue State. And neither story, by the way, features racism as the monster. It's really just, hey, guess what? We get to be the protagonist in this story. We're not the sidekick. We're not the sacrifice. This is our agency, our story, and you can learn from us. Last question. How do you celebrate spooky season, whether it's Halloween itself or the whole month or whatever? Like what what floats your boat? Starting September 1st, I think, is the official uh, beginning of spooky season. And I have my fake crow here in my office. I have a real decoy crow I'm using to try to attract crows to my yard. I watch a horror movie every day. I'm, I'm reading horror all the time. Just rewatched It, as a matter of fact. And mm. that is a scary, scary movie. I find myself drawn to horror about caretaking. You know, my father is 88 yeah. and he needs extra help now. So a really, really dark movie like The Dark and the Wicked or Hereditary or other stories about loss and grief are strangely comforting. 
Yeah. No, I, I relate to that. And I'm I'm a obsessive listener to horror podcasts. So we must pick up this thread another time. Yes. Tananari Du, author of the new book, The Reformatory. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me today. Before we wrap up, I want to take a moment to thank you, our listeners. 2023 was one heck of a ride, and with all that's on the horizon for 2024, we are grateful to be in community with all of you. This show is for you and about you, so we need to hear from you. What issues matter most to you and your community? What do you want to hear us talk about? Tell us what's on your mind by leaving us a voicemail at 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. Or share with us on social at Our Body Politic. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. We'd also like to invite you to sign up for our newsletter, where we share additional insights and resources for the OBP community. Check us out on Instagram at Our Body Politic and click the link in our bio. You can also find our polling at living-data.com. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms and Rococo Punch. I'm host and executive producer for Rye Chidea. Nina Spensley and Shanta Covington are also executive producers. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booking producer. Andrea Aswahe, Anne-Marie Awad, Natina Bean, Morgan Gibbons, Emily Ho, and Monica Morales-Garcia are our producers. Nicole Pasalka is our fact checker. Our associate producer is David Escobar. Our technical director is Mike Garth, with help from Elijah Sheets and the Cutting Room Studios. This program is produced with support from the Serdna Foundation, Ford Foundation, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, Meadow Fund, Democracy Fund, Heising Simons Foundation, Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Open Society Foundations, the Henry L. Luce Foundation, Compton Foundation, Harnish Foundation, Pop Culture Collaborative, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.